Please join me in Ephesians chapter 3, and we continue tonight our study in the presence of God. I want to share this this evening in hopes that what we look at will strengthen us to the extent that we will be effective with family, friends, and strangers October 23rd. I am painfully aware, I wish this were not the case, but I'm painfully aware that at the family, friends, and strangers we uh, come across uh, do not uh, hear the gospel or receive an invitation uh, to hear the gospel uh, from us, it's very possible they they may not receive that from anyone. Uh, Our research is showing that uh, uh, the outreach and witness and evangelism of local churches is at a very pitiful low. And this is shared by many Southern Baptists, in fact. There's not much of a heart uh, for outreach. There is a heart for fear. I I must tell you, however, um, I have never seen lost people more open in my life. And I've never seen Christians more scared at the same time. Now, if I were the devil, and to clarify, I'm I'm not, but uh, (laughs) if I were the devil, uh, that's the perfect... uh, mixture of circumstances to throw cold water on the gospel. Uh, Your family, your friends, and strangers need to hear hear about Jesus from you. At the very least, they need an invitation uh, to come hear John read October 23rd, and you'll have Sunday morning and Sunday evening to help with that. And I want to encourage you tonight, uh, because God can use you. God can, and He wants to. One pastor tells the story of being a young man in his grandfather's woodworking shop. And he, uh, his grandfather was a master woodworker and could do all sorts of things with all sorts of tools, even the wrong tool. And he remembers asking his uh, grandson to retrieve a tool and bring it to him, and it was the wrong tool. He didn't know what he was doing. And he said, no, that's not the right one. It's this, and it looks like this. And so he went and retrieved the wrong tool again. And he said no, and described it again. And while he was retrieving it a third time, uh, the grandfather used a screwdriver to do what he needed done. He didn't need to screw a screw or unscrew a screw, but the screwdriver worked. And he called his name and he said, you need to know that oftentimes it's the handy tool that gets used first. He said, there are, you're going into the ministry, and I want you to know there are all sorts of uh, ministers who've got, who will have more talent, more capability, uh, they will have more charisma, uh, they will have more skill, perhaps, than you do, but they won't be used nearly as much by God as the one that is closest to Him. It's the handy tool that gets used first. Your number one task is to stay close to God and walk in His presence. And Ephesians 3 is going to help us with that tonight. If you want to be used by God, you can be. If you want to be mighty in His hands, you can be. If you'll stay close to Him and walk with Him and cherish Him above everything and dwell in His presence. Keep yourself in God's presence and available to Him and He will use you. And what we accomplish October 23rd will be dependent in large part on that. And Paul addresses that beginning in verse 14 of Ephesians 3. 
For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height, to, to, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled in all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There are several things about God's presence here that arise. One is the promise of his pre- the promises of his presence. When you walk in the presence of God, there's some promises that accompany uh, that presence. One is strength. And Paul's not shy to talk about this. There's great strength. Though you may see failure among Christians around you, God still boldly proclaims there is strength in the name of the Lord. There's strength in His presence. And he talks about the extent of this strength. It is according to the riches of His glory. This is the magnitude of His strength. Uh, It's not according to the riches of your own personal behavior. It's not according to the riches of your own personal maturity. All these things help. But the kind of strength that God is offering is a strength that is measured and is of a magnitude of the riches of His glory. In other words, the strength that He eagerly and generously supplies is the kind of strength that is of the magnitude of the riches of His glory. Um, The strength is in proportion to the magnitude of His glory. uh, It's equal to. In other words, God measures the riches of His glory and says, well, that's how much strength I'm willing to provide. And so the Christian life, the Christian walk, Christian service, October 23rd, is not merely a matter of skimming by on God. It's not merely a matter of running a course with Him and at the end of it being thoroughly exhausted because we're empty. It is a matter instead of having as much strength as He has riches in glory and seeing the power of God descend upon us in a new day coming. You know, some, we've gone a couple generations in the United States since we've seen that. I've seen that in some churches I've pastored, church I came up in, or was a part of soon after my conversion. It is a marvelous thing for God to transfer His throne from heaven into the midst of a church, and it can happen. It can happen. It is a marvelous thing And this is the extent to which God is willing to go in the midst of a people who will walk in His presence. Then there's the essence of His strength. Strengthened with might. Might is a word that is used solely with God. We we are never said to have might. God always is. In Ephesians 6.10, He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So God provides a might in our walk with Him that actually derives from His person. Its essence is divine. It's the very might God uses Himself and has used throughout biblical history and throughout church history. Then there's the means of strength through His Spirit. And so we are very eager, very zealous, very careful to maintain a hospitable environment for the Holy Spirit. We don't grieve Him. We don't quench Him. 
with unconfessed sin. And this is so terribly, terribly important and, and, and very hopeful because we are, in our walk with God, in the experience of His Spirit's power, we are less like candles and more like lamps. Does that make sense? Candles burn their own substance and burn out. That's not what we are. We can be that way. We can be that way. But we're not to be candles. We can be like lamps where an outside fuel fills us and we burn that fuel that comes from someplace else and we don't burn up ourselves. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It comes through a spirit. Then there's the location of the strength in the inner man. We've got to be people who are zealous to practice the spiritual disciplines, to observe a spiritual life, to understand Jesus' words are life and spirit, and we walk with Him in that way. Our hope then as a church family is in the collective walk with God that we have. And when we gather together, the text will imply later, we are stronger in that way. Our hope is not in the height of our steeple. Our hope is not in the brilliance of stained glass. It's not in cushioned pews, nothing like that. We could worship God in a warehouse with sawdust on the floor and split logs as pews and have as much power as we could any place else on earth because it does not rest in these architectural and physical elements. It rests in the power of God in the inner man. So he promises strength. Then dwelling. Look at verse 17. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell has an interesting meaning. It comes from the Greek word katoikomen. Uh, kat is uh, the preposition kata. And usually when placed in front of another Greek word will intensify uh, the, uh, the word. And it's done that way here with this verb oikomen, uh, which means to be at home. And so there's an intensification about the home presence of Jesus in the heart and life. Jesus can be not only in your heart and life, he can be at home there in an intense way. And to state it in the way that some of my church members in Alabama would state it when talking about returning home for homecomings and reunions in lower Alabama, which they affectionately referred to as L.A., they would say, we're going down home. Jesus Christ can be down home in the Christian heart. He can be so comfortable there that it is an is a environment that is very similar to what he experiences now around that throne. You know, he's at home on this throne. He can be at home in the heart as well. And whenever we walk in this presence, he can be at home. And at home in our hearts. So things have got to go to the heart. We have got to do more than merely conform externally to ritual or to form. Uh, we can't be the kind of people who leave a worship service or a quiet time and get upset with how people are driving in the parking lot. Uh, I read just today about the 10 worst experiences church members have ever had in a church, and one of them was a church member honked at someone parking in their parking space. Something about this text didn't go to the heart. And so Jesus Christ can dwell and be down home in the heart. Uh, then another promise is love. This is the lengthiest uh, promise in the text. 
and it uh, addresses the soil of love. He says, being rooted and grounded in love. He mixes metaphors here, which is perfectly fine in the biblical text. Uh, rooted as a root that drills itself into the earth or grounded like a foundation is grounded in the soil. We're, we're nourished by a fixed presence in his love. It's entirely possible to do that. Rooted and grounded in love. That means always in contact with the love of God. Never separated from the love of God. Never alienated from the love of God. Never lacking the love of God. Rooted and grounded instead. And then here are the dimensions of his love. The width and length and depth and height. The width is all. Jew and Gentile alike. The, the, the supermodel and the granny in the wheelchair. The one that is wildly successful at making money and accumulating it and the one that is on welfare. Uh, the, the athlete and the amputee. Everyone in between. All. There's not a person that has to walk a moment without the love of God. Not a single person. That's the width. And then there's the length. From eternity past, God has loved you. God has set his affections and love on you before he created the heavens and the earth. Jeremiah 31.3, I hope, is a verse you'll teach your children. I've loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I've drawn you with cords of loving kindness. An everlasting love. From eternity past to eternity future, that means the love of God is just as intense one moment as it is the next. It's as intense at the highest moment of our lives, and it's as intense at the lowest moment of our lives. God's love never diminishes. God's love never flags. God's love never knows an obstacle. There has never ever been even a momentary weakness in the love of God for you. And you can know that. That's That's the length. And then the height. Ephesians 2 talks about this. Verse 1 says, We were dead in trespasses and sins, and then He came to us and quickened us. He turned corpses into living beings. And then, with the, with, uh, and then in repenting and placing faith in Christ, we were raised up. We were resurrected internally. And then, past tense in Ephesians 2, seated in heavenly places. I, I've told you before what one evangelist said. Uh, Jerry Spear said that, um, uh, or Jerry Spencer said, the amazing thing that Christians are going to discover when they get to heaven is that since they accepted Christ, they've already been there. You have been seated with Jesus since the day you came to Christ, and that was God's eternal plan for you. That's how secure you are in Him. That happens to be the height of His love. Quickened, raised, seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. And I know it doesn't feel like, like that down here, but remember that in the lowest moments. And then the depth, his love reaches down to the very depths, the very depths of where we came from before we knew him. That's how deep his love reaches. And if that confuses you, you might need to come in contact with the biblical doctrine of lostness and personal sin. I know probably most of you, we're not members of the mafia. You probably didn't run drugs across the border. Uh, you're probably not part of a street gang. In fact, you probably never even had a fist fight. You haven't missed much. I've not been part most of those things myself, but... <laughs> I must tell you, it took as much of God's grace to save you as it has taken 
the worst of the worst. If God were to save the leader of ISIS today, it, will, it would have taken as much grace to save him as it would save, to save you. You need to get in contact with that. I, I didn't grow up in church. I came up in a secular uh, home uh, that I'm afraid was probably secular intentionally, to be honest with you, looking back on it. I'm going to have to start asking some uncomfortable questions. Starting January 1st, I'm going to start writing an autobiography for my family. So I've got some questions to ask. And um, they're, they're going to be uncomfortable, but I, I, I've got some I can ask. But I, uh, I knew my sin when I came to Jesus. I was guilty. And the thing that God dealt with me about the moment I got saved was how disobedient I'd been to my parents. Now here's the thing. My external behavior conformed to what they wanted. They'll tell you today I was a good kid. I'm going to tell you what, the moment the Holy Spirit got a hold of me, I didn't think that for a moment. Because my heart was not obedient. My heart was wildly rebellious and independent and disrespectful of them. My behavior conformed. I was impressive externally. Well, I lost that a long time ago, but... I was impressive externally, but internally, and I want to tell you, God hammered me, and I felt like the most guilty person on earth just because of the condition of my heart. And I must admit to you, I am still amazed that God loved me and saved me. If you've never been moved to do backflips and swing off the chandelier during worship, you might need to come in contact with the depths of your personal sin when God saved you. I used to preach <clears throat> when I was younger, and if you want to call it that, I afflicted lots of congregations with messages and sermons, and I wasn't, um, wasn't very sophisticated or capable. I came from almost a fundamentalist background where preaching was equated with volume. And the more thunderbolts you could throw at the congregation, the better it was. Yeah, it's like one lady left church one Sunday morning and said, I don't know what you said, but that's a great sermon. Uh, we were still Southern Baptist. Our hair was a bit longer and we used the New American Standard Bible and uh, didn't wear real nice clothes to church, but blue jeans, but we, we were pretty much there. But um, that's, uh, that's where we came from. And, and so my, my, when I was young, my preaching was not um, uh, very capable or sophisticated. It's about what you would expect a 17, 18-year-old kid uh, who hadn't had any training yet to preach. But early on, I learned to preach expository messages, and I was very grateful for that. But I, I recall in the churches I preached in on the West Coast and then in East Texas early in my Christian life that I could get up and I could preach on the cross in my very unsophisticated way and I could tell the people God loved them and I could describe the gore and the agony our Savior endured and I could extend the invitation and we go through four hymns packed the altar people weeping and moved by God that God loved them and I've noticed a shift and a change I don't know what's happened 
but people are no longer impressed that God loves them and showed that marvelous love by slaughtering his son for our sins. I noticed a decade or two ago in preaching, primarily to church people and church kids, an attitude almost like, well, of course God loves me. What's there not to love? If we are not moved by the blood and the cross and the love of God, we may not be familiar with the depths to which God's love had to sink to save us. If we get bored with the doctrine of salvation, we may not know the depth to which God sank to save us. I don't mean to criticize church people, sweetest people in all the earth, and uh, I need them and depend on them. But please don't ever, ever let yourself dwell long on the erroneous heresy that you are better than the worst of sinners in our world. Don't do that. Flee from that and understand your condemnation before Christ was as great as theirs. Paul talks about the knowledge of love. We expand and increase our knowledge and fellowship. We comprehend this with all the saints. There's something about being in a church that magnifies the love of God. There's an instructional element to the fellowship among the saints. Not sure I understand all of that, but I learn more and more about the love of God whenever I am with the saints. Tony Dickerson from Columbus preached about 10 years ago our evangelism conference over in Augusta at Abilene Baptist Church, Martinez, and he preached John 3.16 on the love of God, and that was an encounter with God I will never forget. It's about the best sermon I've ever heard in my life, and I've heard them all. But we were together with about 1,200 people And we got under the spout, and the glory came out as he magnified the love of God. And then it's a growing knowledge of God's love to know the love of God which passes knowledge. That means means you can never legitimately say, oh, I've heard all that before. Oh, you hadn't even started when you talk about the love of God. One preacher I know of has more than 3,000 sermons on John 3.16. He's collected that many. And when I preach on John 3.16, I tell the congregation that and ask the question, well, if there are 3,000 sermons on John 3.16, why preach on it anymore? Well, if you can get 3,000 sermons out of John 3.16 on God's love, surely there's enough to squeeze just one more out. That's how it is with God's love. It passes all knowledge, and so you'll never come to the point where you can legitimately say, I've heard all that before. It should never be a boring subject. It should never be a dour subject. And this is the promise of walking in God's presence. Isn't that neat? When you get into God's presence, He magnifies love. A holy God does that. And then there's fullness, verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You know, it's possible to be a Christian and still be empty. It's very possible. Not to be filled with the fullness of God, which goes beyond worship. When we gather together on Sundays and permeates every day of the week, it's not like those that are praising God on Sunday. They'll be all right on Monday. It's just a little habit they've acquired. Instead, we're moved with the fullness of God, and God fills all in all. 
for our lives. Well, these are the promises. But then there's a path to it, and what a gracious path it is. It involves intercession. In verse 14, Paul is very intense about this. He said, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that was an unusual posture for prayer among the Jews. Jews didn't typically bow in prayer. Uh, on occasion they would. Jesus stood and looked into heaven, so he didn't close his eyes in John 17. He may have in other places, but um, I'm not aware if he ever did, but he may have. But in John 17, he actually opened his eyes. A Jew would bow to his knees when he was intense about something, when there was fire and passion, when there was burden. And so when Paul prays for this, he's interceding for the Ephesians, that they would have the strength and the dwelling of Christ and the love and the fullness of God. And so he's rather intense about this. Wise and powerful and comforted is the Christian person who gathers others around him or her to pray and intercede, pleading with others to pray for you, not walking alone or not walking by yourself, but depending upon the prayers of others and being that vulnerable is a key to walking in the presence of God and having these promises come to fruition. And then look at what verse 17 says. Oh, this is good news. This is quite a relief, and I am stunned and amazed by God who, to get into his presence, his royal presence, this is all it takes, that Christ may be down home in your hearts through faith. Through faith. God is so desirous to walk with his people and for them to walk in his presence that he only requires we trust him. That's all he's calling for. To get into his presence, we come by faith. And all the ramifications of it, I understand that. But that is what God is saying we must have to come into his presence. Paul will reflect on this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. In other words, my sins and my past life, all my guilt, was slaughtered with Jesus at the cross. Nevertheless, I live. He's raised me up. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. That's what the Father sees. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, if you can trust God, you can walk in his presence. And that's how God has made it available to us. Get someone to pray for you and others to pray for you and walk by faith. Don't pretend like you got it all together. You don't. We know better not that spiritual you struggle get people to pray for you then there's the power of his presence and all how we need it we are tempted in this day to cower it seems like what we believe in is ridiculed and shouted down in so many places we're tempted to cower I would encourage the exact opposite reaction and we can because of verses 20 and 21 now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the power of God, the power of enjoying his presence. It's an inconceivable power. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly, and that's a term Paul coins in the Greek language. It's found nowhere else. It's easy to understand. It takes two words in English, to two very long words, multi-syllabic words, to articulate it exceedingly, abundantly, above 
all we ask or think. It just gets larger and larger with each successive word. Maybe not in letters, but in concept. So here's what he's saying. You take the largest thing you could ever think and ask God for, and God can do more than that when you get into his presence. It's not as if you can ask for the, the largest thing you could ever imagine. Just imagine is this, and God just merely gets beyond that and barely makes uh, it beyond that. He's, he's only got that much power. He just gets to the borders of what you ask for and then is exhausted and just goes beyond it. That's not what it's saying. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He greatly surpasses. He leaves in the dust anything we ask or think because he can do so much more. It is inconceivable. In other words, sweet people, you can't even begin to imagine what God can do when you walk in his presence. And then it's individual, according to the power that works in us. This is the theater of his operations. This is where God works in us is his primary interest. He's got everything taken care of in heaven. That doesn't need any more attention. It's us, and that's the primary interest he has. It's individual. It's institutional. To him be glory in the church. God created the family first, then he created government, then he created the church. These institutions, and he received glory in his church. It's his church that has a monopoly on his presence. Others may not care too much for the church in this day, but God does. God is church-centered in many, many ways, in, in, uh, in all ways. When Jesus came to the earth, Jesus conceived of the church, and Jesus created the church, and Jesus instructed the church, and Jesus filled the church by the Spirit. Jesus gifted the church. Jesus gave access to the church. And when he returns, he's going to return for the church. He is church-centered. He cares deeply about what goes on in the church. And then it's an indestructible power. By Christ Jesus to all generations. And in case you miss what that means, it means forever and ever. So generations we cannot even imagine down through the centuries and the millenniums. They will have access to as much power the, as much power God, of God's power as the first generation did and as this generation did because there's no flagging. The second law of thermodynamics does not apply to the power of God. Vance Havner said, with God's power, there are no blackout dates. There'll never be a blackout. God's never exhausted with this power. So walking in the presence of God holds an awful lot of promise. The path is a gracious path, and the power is very, very enticing. And that's why it's necessary to walk in His presence. And it will build us for October 23rd. Major Ian Thomas wrote this, and he contrasts to be in Christ and salvation, and for Christ to be in us in Christian service. And here's what he says. To be in Christ, that is redemption. But for Christ to be in you, that is sanctification. To be in Christ, 
that makes you fit for heaven. But for Christ to be in you, that makes you fit for the earth. To be in Christ, that changes your destination. But for Christ to be in you, that changes your destiny. The one makes heaven your home. The other makes this world his workshop. You want God to work in and through you in your world? Walk in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I think it would be appropriate at this moment then for us to pray about it. Would you talk to God about your faith and trust in His love? Do you believe He loves you? Do you believe there really is nothing bigger than His love? There's nothing about you right now that can hinder the love of God if you come to Him in trust. Of course you can with Jesus dying on the cross. Who can't believe in a God like that? Why don't you tell Him and speak to Him for a moment quietly about your love or about His love for you and how much you trust Him in that. Why don't you pray for the person on your right that he or she may walk in the presence of God and experience all the promises that come with it. If you're at the end of the row, pray for the first person to my right, your left, on that far row, would you? Lord God, I want to thank you and praise you that texts like this define our walk with God. Our failures don't. You won't let them. Our shame and reproach, they don't. You slay those by grace. Our weakness does not define us. Oh, we've got them. We have shame and reproach and weakness. We have failure. But dear God, you have clothed us in Jesus Christ. You've embraced us. You have named us by Christ. And all these precious and great promises you have offered to us by faith. Thank you, O oh God, for that marvelous love that would lead you to do that. It's so hard to comprehend that. We want to know more and more, but we confess Oh God, it passes all knowledge. 
Nevertheless, I pray that you would help us to walk in your presence. And as we approach October 23rd, would you please let us experience a new day of your power. We pray that lost people among our family, friends, and strangers and neighbors would be the beneficiaries of that. That we would be able to share the good news and invite them to be chaven to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus. Empower us, great God, and shake our region for Christ's sake on that day. And we commit this to you and pray in faith, believing you'll love us. In fact, we believe you love the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We love you. You have a great evening.